Well, hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Events with Benefits. Our podcast is designed to help nonprofit organizations like yours raise more money and achieve greater success at your fundraising events. Well, this podcast is brought to you by uh, myself, Danny Hooper. I'm a fundraising auctioneer. Uh, my partners at uh, Winspire, the industry leader in providing unique, one of a kind consignment travel packages for your fundraising event, and a great company called Donation Match. And uh, what they do is they connect your cause with local and national companies willing to donate products or services to your fundraising event. And who would not like that? You can sign up for free at donationmatch.com to learn more about Donation Match. As for Winspire and to learn more about their one-of-a-kind consignment travel packages for your fundraising event, you can go to winspireme.com. And remember, uh, all the travel packages from Winspire come at absolutely no risk, which means you don't pay a penny until the package is sold at your auction and generated revenue for your organization. Uh, Myself, my name is Danny Hooper. I'm a professional certified benefit auctioneer specialist, been in the game for a long time, been doing this since 1987, and uh, I have a new book called Easy Money, How to Generate Record Profits at Your Next Fundraising Auction Event. You can get your copy on Amazon by searching for Danny Hooper or go to dannyhooper.com. Well, speaking of books, speaking of authors and book writing, we talked to a very, very successful and very, um, I think, brilliant Uh, author on today's episode. Her name is Kathleen Kelly Janis. She is the author of a book called Social Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up, and Make a Difference. And uh, we go all the way to New York today to uh, join Kathleen on her book tour. She's got some fabulous ideas about how to um, really, really boost the survival rate uh, for your nonprofit. Yeah, Kill, or Kathleen has, uh, you know, she's really hit the pavement and and done the research, done the the hard work to go out and and really find some of these analytics and statistics to to really back up what she is uh, purporting in this book, which is you know how to have a successful social startup. Um, and so you know if you're a new or fledgling nonprofit, this is especially important for you. But even if you're an established uh, nonprofit, there's tons of great insights in here uh, for for helping you increase your your donor base and the, you know the amount of following that you're getting so uh, stay tuned Kathleen had a lot of really good nuggets today well that was Ian Loth the uh, vice president of fundraising at Winspire and uh, now from donation match uh, we say hi to Renee Zell hey everyone so yeah exactly what Ian said um, I have to say if you want to get the wisdom uh, from a hundred social startups, um, also known as nonprofits, in I think most cases, Kathleen has basically done all the work for you. Asked them all the right questions and put them all in her book. Um, she has some great examples that she tells us about in our episode. But I think you know to be able to really get hone in on the tactics they use, the book is the place to go. All right, we're sitting here in sunny Southern California today, and uh, we're going to take you with us to New York to join Kathleen Kelly Janis. So, Kathleen, uh, great to have you on the show here today. Our uh, guest, uh, Kathleen Kelly Janis. Yeah, I understand that you're up in New York. A very exciting day for you. You're on your book tour. You've just launched uh, your brand new book, and and a great book, I want to say, uh, called "Social Startup Success: How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up, and Make a Difference." And Kathleen, maybe we'll uh, start the interview here by just getting a little bit of your background and uh, what brought you to the world of nonprofits. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. You know, my background is really 
coming from a small town, I grew up with parents who were very involved in the community, and I spent my weekends often doing volunteer work at the local soup kitchen or at the local hospital. And our dinner conversations at home revolved not just around the people in our community who didn't have enough to eat, but the organizations themselves and whether the organizations had the resources that they needed to provide these really crucial social services. And so from a very young age, I have known about the importance of supporting nonprofit organizations. And I learned this lesson the hard way when I co-founded my own organization, Spark, which engages millennials in new forms of philanthropy. And we hit a wall at around two thirds, like two thirds of nonprofits in the United States. We hit a wall at around $500,000 in revenue and could not get the capital that we needed to grow. And so Social Startup Success is the book that I wish I had when we co-founded Spark. I, I spent the last five years traveling the country and interviewing 100 social entrepreneurs, their staff, their funders, their beneficiaries, all to get to the bottom of this single question. Why is it that some nonprofits succeed and scale and others don't? And so I'm really excited to get the book out into the hands of people who can benefit from it to get the capital that they need in the door to scale their organizations and their really important work. Well, we know that it's a cluttered playing field. How many registered uh, nonprofit organizations are there in the U.S. alone? Do you do you have uh, any data on that? There's different data sources, but the Urban Institute says that there are 300,000 nonprofits in the United States as of a couple of years ago. So, and uh, how many startups, do you have any sense or idea of how many uh, startups or new nonprofits try to get registered every year and what their survival rate is? That is a question I don't know the answer to, but I do know that there are a lot of organizations that are struggling to survive. And and I think that's the real that's the real problem is that the majority of nonprofit organizations are small and struggling before below this five hundred thousand um, dollar in annual revenue wall that I talk about. And the challenge is getting those organizations the resources that they need to to survive. Well, we hear all the time that that uh, starting a nonprofit is just like, and running a nonprofit is like starting or running a business. And if we believe the statistics that how many you know businesses fail within the first three years, uh, I would imagine that those stats would probably closely parallel the nonprofit world. So um, maybe just walk us through some of the highlights of the book and uh, some of the advice that you, uh, with your experience, would be able to offer uh, either an existing nonprofit that is struggling or anybody listening to events with uh, benefits our podcast we get a lot of people uh, listening that that are not a nonprofit but thinking of getting into the space so what is uh, some of the guidance and uh, and help that you might be able to offer well in the book i talk about five key strategies that all of the organizations to some degree that i that i interviewed implemented to lay the foundation for success for those organizations so testing ideas before they go out into raising money and that helps give them data to prove that what they're doing is working and to improve their work as they grow. 
second measuring impact and the organizations that tended to scale more quickly said they began measuring their impact from the very start. So that data collection is really critical in being able to tell your data story. Third, funding experimentation, fundraising through um, both earned and uh, philanthropic sources to come up with a funding model that is most unique and most uh, specific to each organization because there is no one-size-fits-all funding model, as we know. Fourth, leading collectively and drawing on the leadership at every single level of an organization, whether it's your staff, your senior leadership, your board, to make people feel empowered and connected to the work in meaningful ways and thereby able to be more effective in their jobs um, and with the organization. And finally, storytelling and, and ensuring that you're practicing your story, you're perfecting your narrative, and that you're teaching everyone at every level within the organization to do the same. Because the best organizations figure out that their staff, their board members, even their beneficiaries and their funders can be really important brand ambassadors. And that's critical when they're going out and fundraising on your behalf. And so as I think about these five strategies, and, and back to your original question about, you know, sometimes there are people who are not necessarily involved in nonprofits but want to support nonprofits. What's exciting to me is that we are living in this philanthropic renaissance, really, that everyone has the capacity to make a difference in some way, whether it is serving on a board of directors or whether it is uh, being a volunteer for a nonprofit organization. And now more than ever, companies are getting on board with this and giving their employees time to volunteer with social causes and give back in, in ways in the workplace. And so anyone who cares about social change work needs to really understand how a nonprofit operates and how a nonprofit can be effective in their work so that they can be effective in turn in supporting those nonprofits. So that's what I'm most excited for this book to present as a set of tools for anyone to use to support nonprofits better. Well, it's very clear when you read through the book, you have certainly done your homework and done your research. This has been a labor of love, and I don't imagine this is a book that was written in in a short period of time. <laughs> it was a five-year project, and I, I call it my fourth baby because I gave birth to three children in three years while writing it. So I was pregnant for most of the time that I wrote this book. Wow. Uh, let's get back to those five strategies. I just want to drill down a little uh, deeper on each of these strategies, starting with the first one, testing ideas. So uh, a new nonprofit or an organization wanting to create uh, create a nonprofit, how, how do you recommend they test their ideas? Well, new forms of testing have been tested <laughs> at a lot of different nonprofits, and particularly in the Silicon Valley where I'm from, this idea of applying human-centered design has been a really valuable framework to nonprofits. Human-centered design is basically just uh, using user-based, user-focused, um, small prototypes um, to test out different ideas before you go out and launch a big project. So let me give you an example. Beth Schmidt started an organization called Wishbone when she was a teacher in a low-income neighborhood in Los Angeles. And she assigned a paper to her students asking them about their passions. And she was so impressed and inspired with these papers that she went to a photocopy machine and 
photocopied those papers and mailed them using snail mail <laughs> to her friends and relatives. And so she asked them for uh, donations, money to send these kids to camp so that they could follow their passions, whether it was cooking, going to going to a cooking school or whether it was arts, going to a theater school. Um, and so these papers were so inspiring also to her friends and relatives that she raised thousands of dollars and was able to send a bunch of her kids off using fellowship money for those summer experiences. And, and she ended up being so successful that she did start an organization called Wishbone, which is now a crowdfunding platform where inner city kids and low income kids can, can go in and, um, uh, and applies for funding to follow their passions and, and have those kinds of experiences that uh, will make them more poised for college and, and more poised for life in general. And and so what's so interesting, I think, about this story is that Beth didn't go out and start a website and you know launch an organization from the get-go she tested out different strategies to figure out what was going to be the most effective approach to starting an organization in a low cost way that didn't require a lot of capital so that when she did actually start the organization, she was more poised to be more effective. So for example, she early on was just paying for these camps, thousands of dollars. And she realized that if she could work directly with the camps themselves, she would be able to get discounts or fellowships or sponsorships from, from those camps to be able to be more sustainable as an organization so that the, the cost per student wouldn't be as high and she would ultimately be able to serve more students. So those are the things that you need to test early on. And it's not just about testing when you're first starting an organization. It's about integrating that testing process into your work so that you can constantly be refining your model and testing your model and testing out new things as we grow. I think in the nonprofit sector, we have this tendency to not really talk about what's not working in our organization. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, no, there's no incentive because you're out there fundraising, so you need to talk about how great you're doing as an organization and we need to change that culture to uh, be more accepting of talking about failure because part of the testing process is figuring out what doesn't work and that gets you one step closer to the answer Um, but if we don't allow for that for that conversation uh, in the sector then we're going to be selling ourselves short. What a great story. <clears throat> you know, and it's just amazing. It amazes us all the time here. We hear so many great stories on this podcast uh, of people who are just coming up with a spark of an idea and they're they're getting out there as this teacher Beth did and they're really creating some impact. And, and that just segues us into uh, your second strategy is measuring uh, the impact that you're having out there. And how do we go about doing that? Well, Measuring impact is one of the biggest challenges that nonprofits face. 75% of organizations say that they collect data. Only 6% of those organizations say that they are making good use of that data. So that's a big disparity. um, And I think it's indicative of the fact that we have leaders who go into this work because they care about social change. They're not data scientists. And data can be scary if you don't know what you're doing with that data. And what's, what's, on the flip side of that clear is that um, 
my research showed that the organizations that did scale more quickly used data as a critical uh, strategy of that scaling effort. And that makes sense because those are the organizations that are able to go out and get funded because they can talk about the impact that they're having in a very clear and, and metrics-driven way, and those are the organizations that get funded. So how can an organization do that? Uh, in the book, I talk about different strategies such as how to develop a theory of change so that you can um, create very clear key performance indicators um, that will help keep you on track for um, how to, to see whether your organization is on track to achieving its goals. And sometimes organizations might not know what, you know, what their impact will be for years. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that that is a hall pass to get out of measuring your impact. Um, so, for example, Ami Eubanks-Davis, who founded Braven, an organization that serves low-income college students to help them graduate at higher rates and get jobs at higher rates, started with a class of freshmen. So she wasn't going to know the full impact of her work for four years. And that didn't stop her from tracking her metrics because she needed to get funded and she needed to have some proof of concept for her donors. And so she figured out a few proxies that would help her uh, see if she was making progress towards her ultimate goal. So, for example, testing attendance to see whether organization or sorry, whether whether her students were. Uh, we're actually going to graduate. Uh, measuring whether the mentors for the program would recommend those students for jobs as a proxy for determining whether they would actually get jobs. Mm-hmm. And so I think every organization needs to figure out not the 100 data points that they should be measuring, but what are the three to five metrics that really matter and figure out how to tell that data story because that is ultimately what's going to get you funded um, and it's ultimately going to get you closer to impact because you're going to be able to do a better job of tracking your work. All right, Kathleen, uh, we talked about measuring impact. Let's move on to the next uh, point right now, experimentation. And uh, maybe you can just clarify what you mean when you say that uh, strategy number three is experimentation. Well, it's all about funding experimentation. Every single organization is going to have different strengths and weaknesses when it comes to fundraising. And there's no one-size-fits-all model for, for funding. We all know that there are some organizations that are more primed for individual donors. There are some organizations that will only be able to rely on philanthropic donors from foundations. Um, And then, of course, other organizations, if you're lucky, can find some source of earned income to help support the work and make the, the budget more sustainable. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is about how organizations can test out different forms of revenue, whether it's philanthropic or earned, to come up with a strategy that really fits for them. And you don't know until you test out the strategies um, and, and, you know, similar to this idea of rapid prototyping on the programmatic side, think about it on the fundraising side and how we can do a better job of, 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 of applying those strategies to fundraising. So, for example, Jessamine Rodriguez founded an organization called Hot Bread Kitchen in Harlem. And when she started it, she thought this is going to be an organization that is going to be fully reliant on, on earned income. 
and that she wasn't going to have to raise any philanthropic dollars to support the work. And she quickly realized that, first of all, bread has has really low margins. And so yeah. she wasn't going to make a lot of money on the bread. Um, but she but she realized that also um, that, that the earned revenue was only going to get her so far in supporting her training program for low income women to go into the food industry. And so she did develop some really strong earned income sources such as developing a cafe where the women would sell the bread in the neighborhood or selling the bread wholesale to Whole Foods and JetBlue um, and other bigger clients. And she also has an incubator where um, people pay a small amount um, and that is tax advantaged by the city of New York to, uh, to, to use their space and then go out and sell those goods in farmer markets and, and local areas. Those all made up about 65% of her annual budget. And she realized that for the other 35%, that actually she could make better programs if she accepted philanthropic dollars. But those philanthropic dollars played a critical role in allowing her to be more effective as an organization. So, for example, providing childcare for the women who um, <clears throat> wouldn't otherwise be able to uh, take care of their kids while they were going through the program or keeping them in the program longer than it might be profitable necessarily, um, but was the right thing to do. So these are things that you only figure out when you engage in this testing process and the best organizations figure out how to do that well very early on in their, in their growth. Very good. Let's move on to strategy number four now, leading collectively. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, this one is interesting because it really flies in the face of what we think of when we think of the kind of the hero social entrepreneur. We love to turn our leaders into celebrities nowadays in our right. society. So think Wendy Kopp from Teach for America or um, Scott Harrison from Charity Water. You know, these are the face of these you know big organizations. But the reality is that all of these organizations rely on teams to be successful, and it's not very satisfying to work for a leader who goes out and takes all the credit and at the expense of the staff. And so these leaders figure out how to make their staff feel very valued um, by reversing the pyramid. I talk about you know reversing that hierarchy and putting your your staff on the front line, similar to how Jim Nordstrom did it at Nordstrom. He realized quickly that his salespeople on the floor were actually the most important people in his company because they were the one who knew the customers and they were the ones who were out there making the decisions to make those customers happy. And so the nonprofit version of that is figuring out how to make your staff happy because ultimately that's the capital that every nonprofit holds is is its people power. And so thinking about things like how do you design, how do you use metrics um, that your staff have designed so that they can feel really connected with the mission and the cause of the organization and their their participation in that work. Um, and then also board engagement. How do you engage your board and, and establish a board that is really participatory in the organization because a board can be a really critical source of fundraising, of partnerships, and of, of, of advocacy within the community. And so um, tapping into your board is a crucial part of that leadership circle. 
I love it, Kathleen. And this is Ian here from from Winspire. Um, I think this is a really you know critical step. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could speak for a moment about uh, finding you know social influencers. You know, with with social media uh, and trying to spread the word. I know a lot of brands and companies they go out and find uh, trying to find people with you know big followings and and enlist their help in, in spreading the word. Is there something that can be said for for doing the same thing on the nonprofit side? Well, I'm glad you asked this question because it was one of the things that I tested in my survey is, is there some correlation between the organizations that have big Twitter followings and the organizations that are making the most impact? And it turns out there's not. So it's just, I think, relieving for a lot of organizations out there that are just trying to build their Twitter followings to, <laughs> to no avail. Um, I, know, I know this. It's a, it's a challenge um, as an author, too. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, but I also think that, you know, what every organization needs to figure out is not the goal is not social media in and of itself. You need to figure out what your goal is as an organization and then ask yourself, is social media a way to achieve that goal? It. And it's not in all cases. In right. in, in many cases, it's not going to be an effect. And in terms of every organization needs to think about its return on investment for time and what are the opportunity costs of going out there and, um, and, and, and achieving people. I also think that there's, you know, there's, there was this article in the New York Times this week about the kind of all the bots that are involved in right. buying followings. And, you know, I mean, I think that a lot of that stuff can be kind of smoke and mirrors and I think that we all know organizations that are more sizzle than substance and we need to um, be honest with ourselves as funders, as donors, as supporters of, of which those organizations are. That's great and I love how you talk about you know kind of lifting up elevating your staff right to kind of on a pedestal and really highlighting them and their efforts you know above even the leadership team or the board team uh, just really kind of making them the stars, especially when it comes to events, I'm sure, right? Uh, you know, I'm sure you've been mm-hmm. to your fair share of events, but making sure that, uh, you know, the staff is recognized, the volunteers are recognized. Uh, and we've talked a lot, you know, with some of the other guests that we've been on here, uh, talked a lot about enlisting the help of your VIP donors, right? And, and kind of mm-hmm. getting them involved in the act of, you know, in, you know, for example, having them show up early to an event, uh, maybe give them a little bit of, you know, VIP star power, give them some, you know, early access to the bar, some photographs, but then enlisting them in the help of, hey, as people walk in, be greeters for us, be a, an, an arm of the, mm-hmm. the mission and uh, almost elevating those those donors on a pedestal just as much as the staff uh, to try to give them the recognition that will then forward the mission and get pe- more people involved in, in building that social network. Absolutely. And I think you also have to remember that everyone who attends that event event can become a brand ambassador for the cause. And so what are you doing to create a user experience? And this is something we hear about in the for-profit sector all the time, but nonprofits often don't think in that way. And as a result, the user experience at events typically sucks. <laughs> like yeah. you're, you know, you're waiting in lines and you're, sitting, listening to long, boring speeches while the forks are clinking on the plates and um, 
you know, I mean, I think being very thoughtful about every single aspect of that event from beginning to end to make sure that everybody has a, a good experience. Yes, certainly making sure that your VIP is still empowered and taken care of and your staff and, um, you know, your beneficiaries if they're there, but also then conveying that message to anyone who attends because everyone has the potential to be a supporter. There were some really cool ideas that I heard in my interviews. Charity Waters definitely making waves in this area of, of, of events like um, having VR and virtual reality headsets for everybody at their event to experience what it's like to have clean water in Africa um, or, um, you know, engaging them in some of the storytelling aspects through film and, um, and other using other technology to make that possible. So I think being creative is, is really critical and we need to step outside our comfort zone as nonprofits and think about how to be more creative with our events. Well, that leads us to the final strategy in your book, and that is storytelling. And we, uh, we all, uh, I think, we all easily grasp the importance of of uh, telling a good story and how important that is to trigger people emotionally. Because once we've got them triggered emotionally, that's when we've got the oxytocin flowing, and uh, we and we've got uh, we have a conduit to their empathy. So let's talk about uh, storytelling right now and how it relates to your book. Well, again, the problem with nonprofits is that most nonprofits are not very good at storytelling, although they know that they should be doing it better. And the other problem is that most nonprofits don't know that they're not good at storytelling. Yeah, good. There's good point. Great research by Andy Goodman who talks about how, you know, this really high percentage of nonprofits think that they're telling a good story, but then when you ask them, are other people telling a good story, it's a really low percentage. And so you know, there's kind of a some sort of a disconnect there. People think they're doing it well, but not other people. And the problem is because there's a really low bar is that, there's, you know, you hear other people tell the story, you learn from other people, and, and, and ultimately people don't figure out a good way to convey that message for their organization. And so what I learned from the organizations that are doing it well is that they are putting the time in. They're, they're, they're putting the time into developing the narrative. They're putting the time into developing their practice and their, their talking points, and they're making sure that their staff does at every level. So Nadine Burkeritz, who is now a best-selling author, author of The Deepest Well, which just came out a couple of weeks ago and founded the Center for Youth Wellness, talks about her TED Talk, which now has millions of views, which was really catalytic for the organization. She prioritized that. She knew that TED Talk was going to be catalytic for the organization, and she had to nail it. And so she practiced that talk for six months. And she says by the end, her husband could have given the talk for her practically. She had practiced it so much in front of him. And so I think this is something that everyone can learn from because I think we all have the tendency to hear a great political speech or a great, um, you know, a great TED talk and think, wow, that person's just a natural. But the reality is it's not natural. Everybody needs to practice and, and prioritizing that practice for your staff, for your board, for your beneficiaries, and everyone involved in the organization has got to be um, a, a big, a big emphasis. Very good. Well, Kathleen, uh, I'll tell you, 
you've been an absolute delight to talk to, and the book is uh, is excellent. It's uh, for those of you that are listening. It's called Social Startup Success: How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up, and uh, and Make a Difference. Um, you're on your book tour right now. We're talking to you uh, today. You're up in New York, uh, heading to San Francisco next. And uh, uh, what uh, have you created to support the book? Do you have a website? Uh, are there other platforms yes. where people can engage you? Yeah, I have a ton of resources on my website, including a a free e-course with purchase of the book and some evaluation toolkits for nonprofit organizations. And you can find them all at www.kathleenjanis.com. And uh, my Twitter handle is kkellyjanis. Now, everybody should have a copy of your book. And uh, and where where can they find that? Any bookseller including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any, any of your, your local bookstores should have them too. All right. You've already had some good feedback to the book, and uh, I didn't get a chance to get all the way through it. I've got a bit uh, left to finish, but uh, I'll do that uh, very shortly here. And and it's just full of good information, so I hope that our listeners on Events with Benefits uh, rush out to grab a copy. It's Kathleen Kelly Janis, author of Social Startup Success. Thanks for joining us today on Events with Benefits. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show this week. For show notes, special offers, or to listen to previous episodes, you can visit us at eventswithbenefits.com. Please also consider subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. And if you enjoyed the show, do us a favor and write us a review while you're there. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at hosts at eventswithbenefits.com. We'll see you next time.